Well, one person wrote concerning alcohol, alcohol is necessary for a man so that he can have a good opinion of himself, undisturbed by the facts. Uh, By the end of this morning, I hope by God's grace to turn that quote uh, on its head uh, and hopefully be able to confess quite the opposite. I do want us to see this morning first gifts for glad hearts. We come to our final subset of what Paul has titled the works of the flesh. And maybe you'll remember we've seen first the sins of sexual immorality that Paul lists. Then he gets into the sins of religion, idolatry and sorcery. And then he moves on to communal sins, sins that bring division among communities. And he ends with these final two sins that we can put down as, you know, partying sins or sins of revelry. But before understanding the specific sins that Paul addresses here, we must understand the gift of God. Now, that may not seem like an obvious connection, but we have said before and we state again that all sin at its base is disordered desires. So all vices come from a desire that in its nature begins as something good, but is twisted then for something evil. Sin, in one way of speaking, is just a bad use of good things, and it's helpful to understand the good that we are abusing, at least in the form of drunkenness and revelries, as we'll see here this morning, if we're going to understand what the goal is concerning these things. Just with our, uh, as we said in our discussion concerning sexual sins, sin itself is a gift from God. There's nothing impure about it within the right context. But of course, outside of that context or used for its own ends, it becomes something quite distorted and dangerous. And so too with drinking. It's not drinking, as we will see, that is wrong, but rather the improper use of it that can become quite a danger. First thing we want to see as we look at these gifts of glad hearts is just the Bible's view of alcohol. It's abundantly clear from Scripture that God commends alcohol as a gift to be enjoyed. The psalmist teaches us in Psalm 104, You, O Lord, cause the grass to grow for livestock, plants for man to cultivate, so that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of men, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. You'll notice in the same context as food and bread and oil, We are told that God causes plants to grow so that men can produce wine for the express purpose of making their hearts glad. Notice God didn't just say that wine exists and that I guess it's okay because it exists, but that it was made with one particular goal in mind to lighten and brighten the heart of man in order to bring him joy in this life. In fact, throughout Scripture, the idea of the abundance of wine is seen as a great blessing, and the removal of all wine is one of the curses that God brings on his people. So, for instance, in Proverbs 3, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all of your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. In Deuteronomy, that famous sections of the blessing and curses uh, of Mount Ebal, we remember Moses says in the curse section, when God curses you because you've defied him and you, you stopped worshiping, you will plant your vineyards, you will dress them, but you will not drink of the wine and you will not gather the grapes, for a worm shall eat them. 
You see, this is not just some faint blessing that God rarely mentions, but when he wants to express uh, upon his people the joy of their salvation that he intends to bring for them, he often expresses it in terms of not only the quality of wine, but a quantity of wine that will be gifted to them. I mean, when speaking of the glory of the last days, the prophet Isaiah says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a rich food, a, a rich feast for all peoples, a feast of rich food, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, the finest of wines. And in fact, according to John's gospel, the very first sign of the kingdom that Jesus performed was making a superabundance of wine from water that was of the highest quality for a group of people who have already, had already enjoyed so much wine that their palates were doled prior to even tasting it. And why does he do this? Why is this the first sign of the kingdom? I mean, some will say it's some form of curse, but it was really because Jesus wanted to show through this miracle what the kingdom was based on. God's generous gifts, graciously given, intended for the joy and refreshment and celebration of man. That is what salvation is intended to bring. Jesus commends it in the sign, but he also commends it in his own partaking of wine in his ministry. A ministry that spends an inordinate amount of time around tables eating and drinking with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, so much so that his own enemies had a name for him, that he was a wine-bibber and a glutton. But he did so because it was the perfect picture of what the kingdom would look like on the last day. God at table, enjoying fellowship with sinners who had been restored to him. And that is what we will see at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Further, Jesus not only commends it in the sign and through his ministry, we notice that he commands it at the end of his ministry in the giving of the Lord's Supper, where he gives wine as a sign of the blood that was shed for us and sinners and promises us that he will join us in its enjoyment when we see him again in the kingdom on that last day. It's pretty clear scripturally speaking, that alcohol and the partaking of it is not forbidden, but allowed, and not only allowed, but even commended. But how and why one partakes is of the utmost importance. There are clearly plenty of warnings against drunkenness, as we'll see, so it can't just be that any old thing will do. How should we go about making use of this gift that God has given? Well, some will say, uh, and there's not just a few people, that you may drink as long as it has no effect on you at all bodily, as long as it doesn't do anything for you. <laughs> so in our culture, maybe the term that's used is, you know, if you ever get buzzed, that might be what some people say is forbidden. Or if you have any sort of mild intoxication, that would be somehow a sin. And they reason from this, since any amount of alcohol has the potential of affecting us bodily, it is concluded then that any form of drinking is actually forbidden because every drink just gets you deeper into a state of what they consider drunkenness. Uh, to the point, one sermon that I read concerning this, uh, a minister writes, When is a man drunk? When a man has drunk, he is drunk. Which is, uh, Anybody who drinks beverages 
that have alcohol in them in any degree is somewhat affected by it, so he's drunk to that degree. You know what the word drunk is part of the word drink and drank, or drink and drank and drunken? A drunkard is a man who drinks. Anybody who drinks any alcoholic liquor is under the influence of it, is affected by it, and to that degree is drunk. If it takes eight glasses of beer to make a man drunk, this must be written by a German minister. Um, <laughs> it, it takes less than that, he says, for some people. Okay. Uh, then the man who has one glass is one-eighth drunk. The man who has two glasses is one-fourth. He did the reduction for us. And he continues, but it is clear, scripturally speaking, in very, very much contrarily to what this man says, that the effect intended by God, according to the Bible, is to gladden the heart of man. It is intended to lift his spirits. It's a sign of joy that is in, has at its very base a purpose, which is the gladness of heart. That effect, according to the Bible, is not a negative feature of alcohol, but it's positive feature. Well, why is it positive? Wine, as one person says, wine rejoices the heart of man, and joy is the mother of every virtue. Joy is the mother of every virtue. See, when wine is used properly, it really does have this ability to do what God is asking of us. I mean, consider how many people gather together uh, in friendship and fellowship around things like beer or wine and so forth. And in that setting, friendship can be born and even enhanced. These things that God gives, they do help create lightheartedness, conviviality, conversation. I mean, in a world of technology and isolation, these gifts are part of what can bring man out, you know, out of his own home, but then also out of himself as he partakes of them. Alcohol, when rightly partaken of, if you've seen it done rightly, it does open us up to one another. In one sense, it helps us set aside with greater ease our masks that we wear or put down our defenses. Uh, confessions come more easily. You know, maybe you've seen it uh, talked about jokingly, the I love you man that starts, you know, when, when people start drinking. But there is a reality there that we can confess more readily our love and affection for people. We can confess our failures that we've committed. We can express our joys with less reservation because all of the pride and all of the things that often get in the way have been set aside. It can help us be vulnerable and honest and engage in deeper, more earnest conversations without all the hang-ups and grudges and lack of forgiveness and insecurities that often get in the way when we're so overly self-conscious. Maybe you've read the book or seen the film Babette's Feast. If you've come to Fat Souls, we've probably beat this film to death. But uh, without going into all the details, it's about an austere kind of Lutheran sect on the coast of Norway and the two main kind of uh, uh, original characters are these two elderly spinster sisters who are the descendants of the founding pastor. Uh, they live in a really ascetic form of life. Uh, excesses and celebrations are avoided at all costs. Uh, colors are muted. Creation is seen uh, as a great tempter that can lead us away from heavenly things. But interestingly enough, as you watch the film, it's revealed that in all of this quest for holiness, what is also quite evident is that there's discord in this community, even among the most spiritual. 
They have Galatians-type problems. You know, there's one who can't get past the regret of an affair committed long ago. There's another who can't forgive that same instance. There are grudges that are held. There are these uh, 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 conflicts that, that exist. But the story turns around a meal prepared by this main other character, Babette. And it's not just any meal. I mean, the choicest wine is served. The man makes a big deal of it. A quail stuffed with truffles and foie is wrapped in a puff pastry and served as the main dish. And grace, if you will, interrupts this world through, not apart from, God's worldly gifts, the gifts of this very creation. And this man who is invited, as he partakes of it and begins to delight in it, makes this confession. Man, my friend, is frail and foolish. We've all been told grace is to be found in the universe, but in our human foolishness and short-sightedness, we imagine divine grace to be finite. And for this reason, we tremble. But the moment comes when our eyes are open and we see and realize that grace is infinite. Grace, my friends, demands nothing from us, but that we shall await it with confidence and acknowledge it with gratitude. And from this confession comes all sorts of joy and song and even uh, forgiveness and dancing. Celebration is reintroduced into this community through the use of earthly gifts as God had intended them to be used. God gave us wine as a gift that helps us more easily celebrate, appreciate community and family, and display true care without all our normal anxieties. And when done well and rightly, God's goodness and his deeds towards us can be embraced with great gratitude and, remember, and remembered, and we can open ourselves to one another. And we can even be convinced, once again, about the hope of the future. Uh, Robert Capon captures this quite nicely when he writes, With wine at the hand, the good man concerns himself not with getting drunk, but with drinking and all the natural delectabilities of wine, taste, color, bouquet, all of its manifold graces, the way that it complements food and enhances conversation and its sovereign power to turn evenings into occasions, to lift eating beyond nourishment to conviviality and to bring the race for a few hours at least to that happy state where men are wise and women are beautiful. And even one's children begin to look promising. <laughs> Clement of Alexandria, when he was writing on the right use of alcohol, said there are just three basic rules. One, reason is to be our teacher in drinking. Meaning, if one has lost his reason, he has lost his way. He has gone too far. He says, next, the first thing to be done with the raising of a drink is to give thanks to God and to sing a psalm. The next, he says, is to be directed to your neighbor with good and kind fellowship. And that is what we see, at least as what God intends for this particular gift. But the second thing we want to see is what Paul warns us about this morning. We go from glad to gluttony. And we see this in the sin of drunkenness. Paul tells us about, uh, warns us about real dangers concerning these gifts. But in order to understand them, of course, you need to understand the right use and see why the wrong use can be so damning. 
You'll notice the language, he says, drunkenness and orgies in our English translation, which is not the most helpful. Uh, what it's talking about is these kind of licentious drinking parties, something very akin to what we would call, a, you know, a frat party, or when, once you go clubbing. You know, a, a better translation is revelries, these kind of, uh, you know, extended drinking parties that surely could lead to sexual immorality, as we see even in our own culture. But it wasn't first and foremost uh, a sexual context. It was a drinking context that could lead to all sorts of other vices. Drunkenness is referred to more than 70 times in the Bible. And it's viewed in every instance as a sin to be avoided. But if sin is disordered desires, an attachment to a good thing that outweighs our attachment and loyalty to God, we have to see what, uh, how that uh, can be affected by alcohol. Disordered desires are basically good desires that are just ranked wrongly, where, where a good thing outranks a better thing, and therefore you focus on this lesser thing to an extent that you're not doing what you should in other contexts. So, I mean, in a really crass illustration, if beer outweighs your love for your family, that's clearly a disordered desire. I mean, if your drinking keeps you from work and from worship and from family life and responsibilities, it has gone uh, in a direction that is out of order with the way that the Scripture intended it. God intended for drinking to bring us together, uh, to enlarge ourselves, not to isolate one another or cause divisions. If it causes fits of rage and avoidance and sexual promiscuity, then it has become sin. And if you can handle the language, the sober use of alcohol is required according to Scripture. If our imbibing leads us beyond reason, as Clement said, we have failed. I mean, if we lose control of ourself or lose sight of others, we have gone from, you know, something that was intended to make our heart glad into the realm of sin. You will notice that godly drinking is a communal affair. It's not usually something done alone, other than when be used for sickness and other things. It's not done alone in the dark to escape but it's supposed to be done in the light in order to embrace and to enlarge, not to isolate. It's not to be done in secret. It's not to be something that one has to sneak to take part of. It's not something that should make us so lose control to an extent that other vices are embraced without lack of fear or forethought. So if your drinking leads you to do things that you would say the next day, like, I wouldn't have done that otherwise, uh, again, you have gone too far. It should gladden our heart, not cause harm to our own person or others. And so if we have drunk to the point where we're more obnoxious and more aggressive and more disruptive and our guard is so down that all of a sudden all sorts of unrighteousness comes out, that is what Paul is referring to when he says, don't participate in that sort of drinking. In short, if drinking does not produce and promote the fruit of the Spirit but rather promotes the works of the flesh, we've gone from making our heart glad to drunkenness. And so the question of, you know, can I do this and say, you know, what this produces in me is love and joy and peace, patience, gentleness, and so on and so forth, then fine, you're on a good road. But if instead it causes divisions and dissensions and rivalries and anger and those sorts of things, then it has left the track of holiness and has gone into transgression. 
When we think of this sort of drunkenness and revelry, Paul would be speaking against those, for instance, who drink to wash all of their problems away, to avoid their life, to just try to escape for a moment. He'd be condemning the party where everyone is stumbling around, engaging in loose sexual activity or brawling. I mean, in our culture, this sort of binge drinking has been normalized as some sort of rebellious rite of passage. Because in one sense, as a culture, we shun alcohol until a particular date. uh, And then on that date, it's like, well, go and abuse this terribly, you know, now that you're all grown up. Uh, We really have made it to where a taboo has become something that then becomes problematic and even entices poor usage and sin. This sort of drinking, binge drinking, is not only sinful, it's obviously harmful. I mean, researchers have looked at the consequences of this sort of drinking among 18 to 24-year-olds, and they found that in a single year, almost 1,900 college students die from alcohol-related unintentional injuries, obviously some including motor vehicles. 700,000 college students are assaulted by another student who has been drinking, and 100,000 report alcohol-related sexual assaults annually. And so obviously there are great dangers there if one is not doing it for righteous and moral reasons or in a context of community and accountability. I mean, this subject of, of drinking or the permissibility of it is difficult for some, mostly because those uh, who really struggle either have uh, uh, addiction problems of their own or they've suffered under the addiction of someone else in their past. And addiction is a real problem. I mean, it does destroy lives and does great damage to families. And for some, abstention is their choice due to these past situations, either their own struggle with alcohol, their own distaste for what it caused in their own family. And we need to, as those who make that choice to understand and support those things. It is a terrible, life-gripping reality that causes damage to many. But of course, the Bible doesn't call for abstinence as a universal principle. And so the learning how to walk in wisdom and these sorts of things is important. In fact, those who study addiction will note, and rightly so, alcohol isn't even the problem. Rather, alcohol has become the chosen solution for someone who has other problems that they're seeking to deal with. A solution, of course, that only exacerbates the underlying issue. And, of course, that sort of use is dangerous. You know, the Bible would encourage us. We, we drink to remember, not to forget. Uh, and if we're drinking in order to run from something, then we're making use of it wrongly. But as one author wisely noted, alcoholism is to drinking as divorce is to the first kiss. It's the rupture of what should have otherwise been a good and healthy relationship gone awry. As one has said, to drink is to pray. And that really is based on what Clement was saying. If you can't give thanks while you're doing it to God and do it publicly in front of your community, then something's wrong with the way you're making use of it. But to binge is to sin. And so if that's true, if we have the scriptural permission to do something and all these scriptural warnings about its misuse... How do we reorder ourselves rightly for these things? Well, as we close, let me just say this. Paul makes plain whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. A God who has sent his son for your joy and offers that joy to you this morning in a gospel preached and bread and wine served. 
He has come for those who have abused his gifts horribly, misused his grace, and have hurt others in the process. He has come for those who have refused his gifts, avoided joy at all costs, and thought that they were somehow winning by doing so. He has come for those who have brought shame and misery to themselves and others by their disordering of desires. This Savior suffered the negative consequences of our misuse of God's gifts for our disordered desires, for our lack of joy. He underwent the winepress of God's wrath for you. He drank the cup of God's fury to the final drop for you so that you could have joy, so that you would no longer need to hide from God, so that you wouldn't have to sneak around in shame. The cross and the blood shed there scream to you that God is not mad at you anymore, not even a little bit, that his grace, even as we heard earlier, is infinite. And today, as he sets this table for you, he sits down for a meal. And he serves you all together at one time, and he says, eat and drink for your joy. With the goal of not only healing you, but healing us, binding us as a community together. I mean, Jesus has come, and as the angels pronounce, this is good news of great joy for all peoples. And that joy isn't invisible. It's not hidden deep in the unseen recesses of your heart only. God wants you to enjoy his gifts now. I mean, the work is done, the price has been paid, your future is secured, and one of the ways that he tangibly expresses that, one of the metaphors he uses is, it's like good wine. That's how good my salvation is. And oddly enough, because we're sinful, we need to be trained in joy. We need to be trained in gratitude. That's odd, but it is true. We are misers by nature and gluttons by nature as well. And one of our greatest temptations is to be so uptight to believe that God isn't fully for us And therefore, we must always be on watch to impress him or do one more thing to win him over. We are often busy being the elder brother who won't believe his father is that good, so he refuses to join the party and will not eat of the fatted calf or join in the festivities. Christian feasting on earth, done well and rightly, is training people of God for heaven. I want you to hear that again. Christian feasting on earth done well and rightly is training for heaven. It is a tangible place on earth to enjoy God's good gifts by which he testifies through these signs about his goodness to us. This is what eternity, he says, in sign form will be like for you. But for those who have misused and abused it in such a way that they've brought pain and shame and scandal into their own life, this same Jesus invites you to the feast even if you don't feel at liberty, perhaps, to partake of it fully in this life, the forgiveness that's offered that brings joy is offered to you freely. I mean, think of this. Your elder brother and Savior, Jesus Christ, is waiting right now. The only time he's ever abstained is this period of time. Because he refuses to start the party in full swing until we get there. So he will raise a glass and toast with us, celebrate with us in joyous communion as he wipes away every tear from our eyes, removes all of our anxieties and fears, and reminds us once and for all that all is well forever. 
And he wants our communion here to reflect our faith in that reality just a bit. I mean, part of the reason why we can celebrate in this life because all is well. Not because everything looks well, (laughs) but all will be well no matter how disordered this current age is or how much anxiety it brings us in its current form. The new covenant, according to Scripture, is about this joy. And God compares it without blushing to a good glass of wine. And wine is a metaphor we can taste to experience the thing that Jesus came to give us. So every time you take a sip, you should be glad and remember. Be glad not for just wine, but not for less than wine. To use that gift to hurt ourselves or to harm others or to run from God or to shame him is to miss the point so entirely that we have failed in a disastrous way. Don't destroy this gift that is to remind us of heaven by making it hell. Maybe you'll remember the chapter from Brothers Karamazov where Alyosha returns to the hermitage where he beholds his friend and mentor in the tomb, buried as a priest is reading at the, uh, at the nine o'clock hour, you know, as they're reading on the hours, the gospels, and you'll notice as he's sitting there kind of remembering his friend and grieving, he overhears the gospel reading at the time, and it's the wedding feast at Cana being read. And he says this, ah, yes, I was missing that, but I didn't want to miss it. I love that passage. It's Canaan of Galilee. It's the first miracle. Oh, that miracle, that sweet miracle. It was not men's grief, but their joy Christ visited. He worked his first miracle to help men's gladness. He who loves men loves their gladness too, he says. And as he's having this remembrance He remembers the words of his former mentor who now lies dead. He says, do not fear him as he comes to him in some sort of vision. Do not fear him speaking of God. He is terrible in his greatness, awful in his sublimity, but infinitely merciful. He has made himself like unto us from love and he rejoices with us. He is changing the water into wine that the gladness of the guests may not be cut short. Christ has come to give you joy. And he gives you many gifts as a token of that joy. May we use them rightly so as not to miss out on the good things that God has to offer us. Let's pray.